the show the establishment warns about. Welcome back to the Dr. Tommy Show. I am your host, Dr. Tommy McElroy, broadcasting from the free state of Florida in Tampa, Florida. We're glad you're here. Join us online at drtommy.com slash podcast if you would like to see more of the Dr. Tommy Show uh, past shows or if you want to follow us. Have all the different options there, audio and video. Video is on Rumble Live and then the archives on YouTube. And then you can also um, listen on any of the podcasting platforms. We're glad you're here. If you are uh, new to the program, we are um, covering latest and greatest hits from the political processes and also just uh, current events in general. Um, Also medical stuff here and there. So one of the medical things that recently I've, it's always an ongoing thing, but the people that come into our practice who are men who haven't had uh, testosterone checks is a, it's kind of amazing to me because such a large percentage of men out there, young and old have low testosterone or suboptimal testosterone. And one of the things that you'll see people who come in with like fatigue, uh, a little bit of problems with, I guess, motivation, I guess you call it energy, mental energy, physical energy. Sometimes they have problems with, um, you know, sexual health and things of that nature is their testosterone's low. And there's been studies that show that testosterone in men has been declining for the past couple decades, I guess I say, dramatically, like 50% or something. I can't remember. Tucker Carlson did a whole thing about it. Anyway, I see it. I see it. And what's interesting is I see it too in, in the, the different age groups. So let's take, for instance, your average 60-year-old or 50-year-old man. Oftentimes, they will have a higher testosterone than the men in their 30s or 40s. And you explain that to me. I don't know how. There's different thoughts on it. It could be plastics. could be uh, who knows what, food, uh, preservatives, GMOs, whatever whatever it is. It, it's something that's happening. And I wouldn't put it past the uh, people who are on the, on the left to try to poison people to make them have low testosterone because that makes them more likely to uh, vote Democrat. Think about Brian Stelter, for instance. His testosterone is probably around 150. Normal is 250 to 1100. Anytime someone comes in with a testosterone hovering around 400s or less and they have symptoms, we start talking about, well, do you have low testosterone versus suboptimal testosterone? Because the testosterone range is like 250 to 1100. So if you look at it that way, that's a pretty big range. And so if you have someone who's rolling around 400, well, maybe they're, maybe they'll be better off at 1100. And to take the other approach, you may have someone who is feeling well and you check them and they are 400. Then you say, well, I guess 400 is good for you. But back to my point is it may be something that is a, uh, vast left-wing conspiracy to borrow a phrase from Hillary Clinton that the uh, somehow multinational companies are poisoning men to make them have low testosterone to make them more likely to vote for people like Joe Biden you know maybe people like uh, you know more people like you take a guy like Joe Scarborough for instance you know would he be as likely to say and do the things that he says if his testosterone was higher 
I don't know. I don't know Joe Scarborough's testosterone is. I would guess it's similar to that of uh, similar similar to Brian Stelter, based on appearance alone. It's kind of kind of a soft skin. Anyway, that's not that's not a medical uh, judgment. That's that's not even. Uh, that's just an educated guess. Let's call it that. But anyway, back to my point is men out there who have low testosterone, if you do have low testosterone or you feel like you have low testosterone, you should get checked because if it is low, you can get treated. You can treat it in multiple ways. A lot of the younger guys in our practice would like to do injections because uh, I don't know. I'm not going to say this is the reason why, but I know that Joe Rogan has popularized uh, testosterone injections. If you look at the industry and and so far as the industry is concerned, like hormone replacement therapy industry, they uh, skew more towards pellets. They want to push pellets more. And um, I have done pellets in the past. I, I'm i not against pellets. I just, I'm not a big fan of pellets because of a couple of reasons. One is you have to do a procedure. It's every four months or so. So it's not a big deal. But those repeated procedures in in my mind, can cause scar tissue because you actually have to deposit the pellets under the subcutaneous tissue. And so over and over again, you can cause scar tissue to happen. Um, the other reason is once you put the pellets in, they're in, there's nothing you can really do to change it. So you have to say, we're either going to hopefully get it the right way, or we're going to be subtherapeutic for a period of time. Or we're going to be super therapeutic for a pe- period of time. And you may say, well, eventually you'll get the right dose, which is true, but that may take a year or so with, with testosterone injections. You can just, I mean, theoretically, you can change it week to week, although that's not done. And the same with cream. Although cream comes as a compounded thing, so you have to use the cream and you'd have to change the dose of the cream. Testosterone injections, you can change, like I said, you can change week to week. But either way, if you do have low testosterone and you get treated, you'll probably feel better. Uh, A guy like Brian Stelter, if he had high testosterone, first of all, his voice would change, which would be great. Um... Another thing is, you know, he wouldn't say the things he says about, oh, you know, being all over, um, what's his name, uh, Michael Avenatti, who's now an inmate, uh, you know, saying that, you know, effusively praising Michael Avenatti and saying, you're going to be the next president, I can tell, I think you're going to be great, and just making a fool of himself. And in general, for us, it would be great because fewer people would vote for people like Joe Biden. Anyway. If you're out there and you need to get tested and you're in Tampa and you want to get tested here uh, and you want to you want to just learn more about our practice, you can do that. So uh, Governor DeSantis has come out both barrels blazing. Going after the colleges. And we covered last week, I think it was uh, talking about how Governor DeSantis was going after uh, some of the uh, sacred cows on the left and how he was going to be called a racist and he was, and I can't even remember what that was. Um, oh, it was about the uh, AP course in African American history that was uh, concerned about uh, bl- black queer history, I think it was, or something of that nature. And DeSantis came out against it saying, this is not a legitimate focus of history for African American history, and um, basically said to the publisher of that stuff that material that you know we're not going to use this and if you want to come back with something better go for it and 
and I predicted that he would be called a racist for it, and sure, certainly he was. And now here he comes out again. This is Don, this is like uh, Donald Trump was back in the day. Uh, you hit him, you hit him with something, and you criticize him, and you expect him to cower down like your normal average Mitt Romney type politician. Go cower in the corner, shut up, not say anything else, maybe even apologize. Uh, not happening. He came back with both barrels, and this is uh, what he said. Uh, he is going to um, go after the universities for their uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion spending. And he is actually, uh, he, he's tasked the universities with outlining what, what it is they spend money on. And this started in December. This is from the Daily Caller. Florida universities quote, misreported diversity, equity, and inclusion spending, DeSantis administration says. It says, the State Office of Policy and Budget requested December 28, each state public university submit a report report detailing how public funds were used to support DEI and CRT initiatives, which reportedly tallied over $28 million total at the university level, including approximately $15 million of taxpayer money. The administration, however, claims the total amount reported, quote, revealed an extraordinary misuse of taxpayer dollars to promote a political agenda at the expense of academic focus. Uh, Brian Griffin, uh, DeSantis press secretary, said in an email to the Daily Caller News Foundation. It says, undoubtedly, these bureaucracies are more interested in protecting their status quo and furthering their agenda rather than delivering quality education to Florida's students. Consequently, the uh, executive office of governor is working to ensure a full and truthful compilation of CRT and DEI related spending is gathered. And these efforts are ongoing. Um, It says here, this is this is uh, one of of the things they found. Universities spent taxpayer dollars to fund social justice related documents that were distributed on campus. the The DeSantis administration revealed Florida State University, FSU in Tallahassee created a, quote, social justice ally workbook that allowed students to, quote, confront their guilt, while at the University of South Florida, USF, that's here in Tampa, established a, quote, anti-racist resources document, which includes an ongoing list about things that, quote, white people can do for racial justice, which is currently up to 106 recommendations. And uh, I looked that up earlier today, and it's actually, I think it's, it's a little bit more than that now. Um but here's just some of the things. This is from this document, this anti-racist, anti-racist resources document that the University of South Florida established. This is for um, is this for students? This is for students. Yes. Okay. So here we go. It reads. This is from Google Google Docs. They have a link to it on American Greatness. Is where I got the link from. Uh, this this article came from Daily Caller, but there's another article from American Greatness. Either way, it says. Anti-racist resources for white people. And it says here. Uh, this is by no means an exhaustive list. This is a starting place. I don't know who the person that is speaking is, and the first person is saying this is apparently someone with USF. I have listed a handful of books, podcasts, and articles, and people. I will continue to update this document as I come across additional resources. If you have resources not listed here and that would that have helped you on your journey to anti-racism, and you would like to see them added, please let me know and I'll happily add them. He says a few, she or he, whoever says, or they, says a few, but there's a lot of books here. So I'm just going to read some of these book titles. This is distributed to the students, right, at USF. 
um, anti-racism studies, right? Resources for anti-racist resources for white people. Here we go. Title books, books on whiteness, racism, anti-racism, no author given, uh, white fragility. This is by Robin D'Angelo. I've heard of that one. Me and white supremacy. This is by Layla Said or Saud. Uh, Waking Up White by Debbie Irving. That's probably a white person. White Rage by Carol Anderson. I don't know who that person is. <clears throat> Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. This is from Rennie Edu Lodge. How to Be an Anti-Racism, uh, Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. He's one of the big wigs in this uh, racket. It's uh, Ibram X. Kendi. So you want to talk about race, and this is from uh, Ijuama Olu. And then they have books on systemic racism, uh, the color of law, the color of money, the political determinants of health, dying of whiteness, um, and then books on the black experience, uh, and on, 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 on. But here's, a, here's this interesting thing. One of the things they have is an article. They have articles. And it's this link to this uh, article titled 75 Things White People Can Do for Racial Justice. So if you click on that hyperlink, uh, it takes you to a, a, a article that says um, it has this person named Corrine Shuddak and it has a picture of her and she's a white lady. And it says 106 things people can do, white people can do for racial justice. And this was started in 2017. It was last updated in February. Um and it says, note one, this article was last updated on February 5, 2022. Note two, our work is to fix what we broke and left broken. Note we. This work isn't done until, quote, black, not quote, capital letter, black folks tell us it's done. <laughs> okay, here we go. Uh, let's see here. Uh, it, goes, it goes, there's a, there's a listing of all these different things you can do. Um it says you can buy books that feature uh, persons of color as protagonists or heroes. And it lists a bunch of books. Uh, it says work on ensuring this is number 11. Work on ensuring that black educators are hired where black children are being taught. I'm not sure what you're supposed to do. With that. Are you supposed to uh, volunteer this? Is this what you're supposed to do? If you want to know more about why and how this makes a difference for black children, check out this episode of Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. There's some really good nuggets in there about how schools can support achievement of black students, blah, blah, blah. Um, donate to anti-white uh, anti supremacy work, such as your local Black Lives Matter chapter. Uh, I didn't know that's what Black Lives Matter did. I thought Black Lives Matter was about buying homes in suburban white neighborhoods. Isn't that what they did with a bunch of that money? Uh, support black businesses. Uh, you, find them on, you can find them on We Buy Black, the black wallet. Official Black Wall, Official Black Wall Street, I am Black Business, Shop Black, and another good list is here: Black-owned bookstores, floors. You know, this is this is a very popular thing now. This is Black History Month, February, and so what we're doing in Black History Month, instead of talking about black people who are maybe historical figures, most of what I've seen and when I look into the stores is Black History Month is about patronizing people based on their skin color. So I went into Target the other day, and there was a big sign of Black History Month. And um, basically, it had you know some black people on the sign. And then if you go around this, uh, the corner, they have, uh, I guess there there's um, products that are made by black people. 
because it says black owned businesses and uh, something or another about that. So basically what they say is Black History Month is kind of like what Net- Netflix has done and uh, Disney Plus have done is they say, look, in order to show that we're big hearted and we uh, love black people, we're just going to go ahead and put all of these products out here and say, uh, because this is produced by a black person, you should buy it. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with how good the quality of the material is, uh, whether it be a, a book or a movie or, or a shirt. You should just buy it because it's a black person. And you as a guilty white person like this person is potentially uh, should just go in there and buy it uh, and patronize these people uh, based on their skin color. And it goes on and on and on and on. And, and, they, and this person here talks about what Netflix is doing. It says, get your company place of worship, condo building, gym, etc., to move some or all of its money to black owned banks like Netflix is doing. So this is how, this is how they think, uh, you, you further eliminate racist behavior is by using skin color to determine everything about how you react basically from where you, uh, where you bank to who teaches the kids to, uh, what books you learn, uh, read about and, and how you feel guilty about it. Uh, right to state or uh, right to state legislatures, uh, federal legislators, and your government to decriminalize weed. No, not because black few, flex, black folks use more weed than white folks, uh, but because black and white folks use weed at roughly the same rate. Black Americans are arrested for marijuana possession far more frequently than whites. So there we go. You can't even have uh, marijuana be a topic of something that is not colorblind. Is there, for God's sakes, if there's one thing in, a, in, in this society that we can agree on that Dr. Martin Luther King says, let me be judged not by the color of my skin, but the content of my character. Can't we just smoke weed without having to be worried about our skin color, for God's sakes? Uh, it goes on and on and on. I mean, this is that's number 35. It goes on and on and on and on. Go to black-owned bookstores. And this is, like I said, this is written by this per- person who's a, uh, a white person. And this is under the anti-racist resources at the University of South Florida. And this is what Governor DeSantis is saying that we uh, need to cut down on uh, less of this and more about actual education in our universities. If you want to do this on your free time, knock yourself out. But when it comes to the universities, which are supported by the state, uh, funded in part by the state, funded by taxpayers, uh, and then also, you know, just the students themselves, at least, at least if you're going to send your kid to school and they happen to be white, they shouldn't be, uh, called out for their skin color. That's just, uh, not American in my mind. Uh, it's, it's pretty, um, I don't know what, I, I think a lot of these people who are, have this anxiety about racism probably didn't spend enough time when they were young, exposed to people of different backgrounds, including different colors, skin colors. And so I think what happens is, well, there's a couple, some people who are into this racism as a, as a, uh, what do you call it? Racism as an ongoing industry, let's say a racism as like something that's never going to change something that is always going to be there and something that we're always going to be anxious about. I think there's a couple of varieties of people who are into that. One of the varieties is, a, is the, is your average white guilty feeling liberal. And they are people who have basically grown up, not around P 
people of different backgrounds, not around people of different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, and not around people of different skin colors. And because of that, they grow up, they go to college, and this is the, this is the key. They go to college and then they get confronted by stuff like this. And they go and they sit down and they go get a free lunch somewhere and they're just sitting down there. Your average young skull full of mush, a white liberal student at college, and they sit down and then what happens is they, they hear a speaker come up and the speaker may be a, a person of color. And, and the speaker talks about racism and how the people out there in the audience who are white are responsible and their forefathers and foremothers and everybody else is responsible. And this person starts thinking, you know, I've had a pretty privileged lifestyle. Uh, I'm, I'm not paying. I, I don't have student loans. My parents are affluent or, or at least able to pay for my school. I never had, you know, my parents were married or maybe if they weren't married, at least my home life wasn't bad. And here's this person standing up in front of me and I feel sorry for this person. And because they are a different skin color than me and they're telling me that I should feel sorry for them because I'm to blame basically and my people, then I'm going to therefore commit my life to being an anti-racist. And there you go. And it begins. And before you know it, they're writing blogs and articles about uh, what white people can do for racial justice. And I think that's that's part of what is the problem is there's not a uh, these these people grow up and they're not exposed to a lot of things. You know, I've met people in life and I used to go to when I was a kid, I used to go to school with people who, um, you know, upper middle class, middle class, whatever, white, mostly. And the only black people they ever came across were the people who cleaned their homes. You know, think of Nancy Pelosi, for instance, you know outside of the uh, the occasional congressional dinner parties or wherever where she's around um, people of color to use their phrase when was that when's the last time that she actually engaged with a person that is not her you know lily white like her and so she has this uh, ability then for to uh, em- envelop herself with this kind of uh, um, this this I guess you call it a force field of criticism against criticism by saying, look, I'm anti-racist and I'm going to espouse all these things that are sound good on paper. You know, I'm for diversity and this, that, and the other. When in actuality, they, they probably are as, as racist or as, as um, indifferent about treating people based on skin color as anybody else. But because of their backgrounds, they feel guilty about it. And so they go off and they just... And they become anti-racist. And uh, I think if people had more of a, a diversity, uh, quote unquote, in their, and I don't mean diversity of, of skin color. I just mean diversity of experience. Uh, be around people who are different, come from different backgrounds. That's the key. It's not really about your skin color. I mean, because really, what does Michelle Obama have in common with the average inner city black person? Nothing except for her skin color. But because of the way we view uh, race today, quote unquote, we just, everybody's got to be lumped in together based on their skin color. And um, the other thing that the, the people that make a big deal about this racial industry are the people who make money off of it. And respect this article, it says, it says here, uh, universities outlined line by line how much taxpayer money was spent on DEI and CRT initiatives according to the State University System uh, of Florida report. Large sums of money were allocated towards diversity offices and state members, staff members. 
University of Florida spent more than $750,000 worth of state funds on its chief diversity officer and staff, the report said. The University of Central Florida paid its vice president for diversity, equity, and inclusion and assistant $445,000 a year annually at the expense of taxpayers. Diversity offices at USF and the Florida International University cost more than $1 million in taxpayer dollars, according to the report. Florida A&M's University Center for Environmental Equity and Justice costs taxpayers $1.8 So this is the other people who benefit from this ongoing racial industry is the people who actually work in the industry. This is from Walter Williams. This is back from 2020. And so if, you, if you're against diversity, equity, and inclusion, you're therefore racist, right? So... Dr. Tommy is not a full-throated uh, uh, proponent of diversity, equity, inclusion. Therefore, he must be a racist, uh, is, what, is what you may hear. So anyway, here's, here's what Walter Williams has to say. And it says, says uh, this is, is racism responsible for today's black problems? Uh, tw- this is July 29, 2020. Uh, the most devastating problem is the very weak, very weak, black family structure less than a third of black children live in a two-parent household and illegitimacy stands at 75 percent the quote legacy of slavery is often blamed such an explanation turns out to be sheer nonsense when one examines black history written even during slavery where marriage was forbidden most black children lived in biological two-parent families Professor Hubert G. Gutman's research in the, quote, Black Families and Slavery and Freedom, 1750 to 1925, found that in three-fourths of 19th century slave families, all the children had the same mother and father. In New York City in 1925, 85% of black households were two-parent. In fact, five and six children under the age of six lived with both parents. During slavery as late as 1920s, the black teenage girl raising a child without a man president was a rarity. And it says here, uh, it goes on to talk about more statistics about basically how there was no difference between black families and Irish families and German families uh, and Native American white families. I'm sorry, Native white families uh, in the 1880s or up until the 1920s. It says, um, in fact, it says, Thomas Sowell reported going back 100 years when blacks were just one generation out of slavery. We find that census data of the era showed that a slightly higher percentage of black adults had married or had married than white adults, meaning there was high, more black people married than white adults, uh, just one, one generation out of slavery. This fact remained true in every census from 1890 to 1940. It says the absence of a father in the home predisposes children, especially boys, to academic failure, criminal behavior, and economic hardship not to mention an intergenerational repeating of handicaps and today's weak family structure is a leg. If today's weak family structure is a legacy of, of slavery, then the people who made such a claim must tell us how it managed to skip nearly five generations to have this effect. There are problems such as grossly poor education, economic stagnation and poverty that impact the black community heavily. I would like someone to explain how tearing down the statues of Christopher Columbus, Thomas Jefferson and Confederate generals helped the black cause. Destruction of symbols of American history might help relive the frustrations of all those white college students and their professors frustrated by the 2016 election of President Donald Trump. 
problems that black people face give white leftists cover for the anti-American agenda. There you go. So if you look at the CRT uh, and all this, all these links here that we have here, podcasts, articles and things, the crux of the, the crux of all of the umbrage that is causing uh, these people to create this, uh, this, this, this content is that white people are to blame or racism, systemic racism to be more general is to blame for what's going on in black communities in particular. But they like to, let's say BIPOC, you know, black indigenous people of color, whatever the case is. Anyway, just speaking about the quote unquote black people. But if we go back here to this Walter Williams article, that doesn't make sense that if it was related to racism only or predominantly, then why is it that this up until recently we've had uh, relatively intact families, but up and but not not recently we've had something happen that was uh, changing the way these black families were, and this was fifty years ago when we had uh, the or sixty now the the uh, the Great Society and Lyndon B Johnson, and so what we happen here is that you look at what we're having today, high crime. You look at the black neighborhoods, you look at uh, inner city neighborhoods, they're all pretty much run by Democrats, um, including like Minneapolis, where, you know, George Floyd was was killed and everything else. All those places have been run by Democrats for some in, in, some, in some cases up to a century. And if you look at it, if you look at today's uh, progressives, the people who are promoting CRT, the people who are promoting um, diversity, equity, inclusion, they point at there's, there's systemic racism. If systemic racism is to blame, then how come there wasn't a deterioration of the family structure until after 1950, until the 1960s with the advent of the Great Society? Why is it that, that until then, systemic racism, as, as Walter Williams says here, how did it skip five generations? Actually, it's Thomas Sowell. It was his quote. No, it was, it was Williams. It says, if today's weak family structure is a legacy of slavery, then the people who make such a claim must tell us how it managed to skip nearly five generations to have an effect. Uh, because if you're going to get to the crux of a problem, you have to actually be honest about what the problem is. And you have to be honest about, I mean... If you really want to find out what the problem is, if you're, for instance, if you want to find out what's wrong with inner cities, quote unquote, wrong with them, why there's such high violence, why there's gun crime, why there's crime in general, why they, um, why the families are, are, there's very, very few married families. You have to look at what is the reason for it. And if you're, if you're going to just say, well, it's racism, it's systemic racism, leave it at that. You're never going to be able to to move past it because racism is racism, and it's like Walter Williams says: How much can be blamed on racism? Will there always be racism? Yes, just like there will always be murder. Unfortunately, there will always be rape. There will always be children exploited because there's evil in the world. But to say that the problems that we have now are based on racism and based on white supremacy. There's really no great evidence other than the people who say that 
the people who proclaim it. And then what keeps that going is mostly white guilt or liberal guilt in general. And then the money that's into it, the money that keeps cycling through this, uh, these CRT programs and things like that, because all of these, and it's all part of this bigger onion of diversity, equity, inclusion, which is a part of a bigger onion of uh, ESG, environmental social governance. So, but if you look at the reasons for, I mean, let's put it this way. If you look at crime in the in the inner cities, and if you look at the poverty in the inner cities and the lack of education in the public schools in the inner cities and urban areas, you can only point to one commonality amongst all of those things, and that's the government. The government has failed those areas. The government is, in many ways, uh, holding those people captive. And that's done on purpose, I think. I think the government likes people in cities. I think, by and large, the government wants people in cities. And when I mean the government, I mean national government, for instance. Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C., if to be use generalizations, is, is a Democrat city, government-wise. It's, it's like 95% voters of Washington, D.C. vote Democrat. And the government establishment is a Democrat operation. So whenever Republicans have some type of uh, temporary power in Washington, D.C., whether it be control of the Senate, control of the Congress, control of the presidency, they are there as a guest of the Democrats. The Democrats run Washington, D.C. because Democrat Party is a party of government because that's what they promote. They promote big government. And so do Republicans. I mean, let's not let's not be wrong. Republicans promote big government in a different way. Uh, Democrats promote government, big government, in a client uh, relationship, meaning the government sees the constituents as clients that they can then serve, and they're a client constituency, so they give them things. Uh, Republicans see big government as a way to be corporatists. So government, big government, Republicans see government as a way to uh, have expenditures for the defense industry, for instance. Uh, big government sees, uh, I'm sorry, Republicans see big government as a way to allow for uh, cheap labor in, in the instance of, the, of uh, like a, the libertarian-leaning, quote-unquote, uh, conservative or Republicans who want cheap labor across the board. Anyway, but government is, a, if we're going to say generally, is a Democrat. Democrats are the party of government. And if you look at any state, if you look at any um, state, invariably, I don't know if it's invariably, maybe it's not invariably, but I, I would guess, I would hazard to guess that there is one state in the union that has a majority of the counties blue. So if you look at a county electoral map in any election, whether it's a election for president or congressional elections, if you look at any state, the number of counties that go Republican or red, I've never heard or seen a, a, a state where the number of red counties was outnumbered by the number of blue counties. But what happens is the blue counties have the big cities in them. And so if you have something like Minnesota or, or, you know, Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin, it's got this, you know, blue, but there's a few blues it used to be that way in Florida too. 
There's a few blues, and those few blues were enough to swing the vote so much because they're so heavily populated um, cities that they could swing. There were so many voters in those areas that they could make it to where uh, the state would be a toss-up or, or the state may even go blue. I mean, look at the county electoral maps anytime you have a presidential election. I think when Biden won, quote-unquote, this last time, I think he got 16% of the counties. So 84% of counties voted for Donald Trump, a majority. I mean, most of the people in those counties voted for Donald Trump. A majority of the people in those counties, 84% of the counties voted for Donald Trump in the United States. So anyway, back to my point is you can see what is the vested interest of government in keeping people in cities? And what is the vested interest of government in terms of the great society and destroying families and making it to where families are now dependent on the government to subsist and therefore always going to stay in the cities, always going to stay near the government resources and always going to stay in poverty. That's why they hate the pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. They hate to hear that. They want anybody to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. When I say they, I mean the, the Democrats in power and big government. They don't want to see anybody pulled up by their bootstraps. They only want to see you succeed if you succeed on their terms. That's why they hate somebody like Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas is anathema to your average Democrat, to your average progressive, because he has put a finger in the eye of their argument that you can only get ahead as a black person in America because of systemic racism if you go through our channels, if you go through their approved processes, if you think the approved way, if you join the approved groups, if you vote the approved way. So Clarence Thomas is anathema to them because he throws all of their arguments and into the fire and burns them up and it makes them uh, livid because they invest so much so heavily in this fiction that the, the united states of america is founded on racism is a racist country you can't get ahead if you're a bipoc you can't get ahead unless you are going to toe the party line uh, and, and follow the, the progressive progressive playbook and vote the right way and think the right things unless uh, if, you, if you go outside of that, then you're going to be you're going to have hell to pay. You're going to be called a black white supremacist like uh, Larry Elder was in California. They don't want you to succeed on your own if you're of certain skin colors. That to me is the ultimate racist behavior. That is racism, pure and simple. That's one form of racism that the CRT, uh, DEI, or as uh, Jason Whitlock calls it, DIE, diversity, inclusion, and uh, equity. He likes the DIE acronym better than DAI. So anyway, so that's that, that's the one of the racist ways that they treat people is a, is like you know uh, <clears throat> what's a George Bushism from before the soft bigotry of uh, low expectations. If you have a certain skin color, you have a, they have low expectations for you and you shouldn't have expectations of yourself either, unless you can join us and, and follow us, but don't go on your own. Don't go the way of uh, conservatism. Don't uh, you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You, you have to go through the government. The government has to be there to guide you. The government is your protector. The government is your, uh, is your, is 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 your, is your leader the government is your god 
So that's one of the racist ways. And the other racist way is, well, they, they'll go on and on about white people. You know? White racism, anti, you know, like this this article from the university, I mean, this uh, resources document from the University of South Florida says, books, white fragility, me and white supremacy, waking up white, white rage. I believe white rage is what Mark Milley liked to read. Remember him? Joint Chiefs of Staff told Donald Trump that it'd be better to leave $82 million, billion dollars worth of weapons in, uh, in um, Afghanistan. Anyway, racism, racism, racism. You know, all the talk about racism, they need to really take a, a strong look. I believe a lot of these people are brainwashed, though. Honestly, I believe it. It's about feeling more than anything uh, when you're on the left. You have to feel. You have to feel enraged. And then most of the time they are enraged. Feel enraged. I mean, picture, picture your average uh, woke person that you see. Very unhappy looking person. Extremely unhappy. Picture uh, um, you know, picture that. What's that woman's name? Uh, what's her name? The human urinal. Uh, Chelsea Handler. Yes. Why do I call her the human urinal? Because you know, if you want to look it up, she allowed herself to be urinated on. I don't know why. She did. Jason Biggs from American Pie. Uh, she did that. Anyway, the human urinal, Chelsea Handler, just the type of just angry. But she probably would never, ever be able to think about things that we were just talking about because she could never get past her initial rage about it because she feels that white people are bad. Why? Because she probably feels guilty. She probably grew up not around a bunch of uh, different people of different backgrounds. And then therefore is, is now entitled to feel guilty about that and entitled to force her guilt upon you. If you're also white, see me, I don't have to feel guilty. Why? Number of reasons. A, I didn't have some privileged background where I wasn't exposed to people of different colors. A, B, I am a different color. So screw you. If you think that I can't, uh, also be BIPOC. Uh, and then C, I think, I'm not a feeler. I don't feel and then uh, just only feel, I think. So that's why I'm protected. You know, Gavin Newsom had this law out in California where he was going to punish doctors who were not towing the party line on COVID. And uh, he was basically going to, you're going to lose your license, really, if you spread COVID misinformation. Uh, And that was one of the freedoms he touts out there. You know, he always goes on about freedom in California, you know, versus freedom. uh, It's kind of truly Orwellian. The way he speaks about freedom in California, as if it's freedom, it's truly Orwellian. It's like uh, ignorance is freedom or ignorance is strength. Uh, Slavery is freedom. War is peace. It's truly that way out in California because he says that they're very free out there, but at the same time, uh, it's the People's Republic of California. It's the, probably one of the least free states in the United States when it comes to uh, personal liberty and, uh, uh, you know, in this case, free speech. Anyway, it says Newsom law that punished doctors for COVID-19, quote, misinformation blocked by California judge. This is from MSN.com. A U.S. judge blocked the implementa- implementation of a California law that sought to punish doctors for spreading, quote, misinformation about COVID-19 while he considers two lawsuits challenging the measure as infringement on First Amendment. It says here, Judge William Shubb of the U.S. District Court 
in the Eastern District of California ruled that Assembly Bill 2098, which was signed into law last October by Governor Newsom, was not clear enough for doctors and physicians to understand what kinds of statements could put them at risk of punishment. That's the idea. Issuing a preliminary injunction in favor of the plaintiffs who sued. So that's the idea is that you don't want it to be clear. You want people to be worried. Do you think people in the Soviet Union, uh, when they spoke to their friends at the pub, uh, do you think the Soviet Union wanted them to understand exactly what they could and couldn't say when they were being critical of the local uh, uh, communist chieftain? Absolutely not. That's not the way tyrants behave. They want there to be uncertainty. They want it to be. They want you to be scared that you may lose your license in this case for speaking ill of uh, whatever COVID nineteen uh, theocracy has recently said. You know, you, that's exactly what they want. This is purely a case of uh, back. You know, during the Soviet Union, you know, like I said, it was Stalin. There's a great movie out there. It's a it's a movie on HBO called Stalin, starring Robert Duvall in the titular role as Joseph Stalin. And there's this there's this part in the movie where, you know, he's got these he's henchmen that, that are acting at his behest. He's basically executioners. And from one day to the other, the executioner may change. One day you're executioner, next day you're the executioned. Uh, you're being execution, ex- executed. So one day you're you're in favor of Joseph Stalin, but the next day you can you cannot be in favor. And sometimes you play play tricks on him and pretend like you know maybe you're in disfavor. And it's a very uneasy thing. So you don't know if you're going to this today's the day you're going to be shooting people on the back of the head with a twenty two, or you're going to be one getting shot. And it happened in the movie at least. But anyway, that's what they want out in California. They don't want you to know. That's the key. In a 30-page opinion, Shub said the defendants in the case, Newsom, Attorney General Bob Bonta, California Medical and Osteopathic Boards. So get this, the, the medical boards are on board with it. What a what a what a asshole state. Failed to provide evidence that scientific consensus has any established technical meaning. Adding that the law contained no clarity on the meaning of the word misinformation. Exactly right. COVID-19 is a quickly evolving area of science that in many aspects eludes consensus. Good for him. Good for William Shubb. I don't know if this uh, guy was appointed by uh, who, but good for him. Great. That's what we need. We need, And that's the only thing that's really saved us in this era of COVID. I mean, honestly, is the, is the courts. Think about all the different challenges that have been made in the courts that have been uh, against the state, whether it be from masking, whether it be from mandatory vaccination, whether it be for uh, transparency. You know, the masking thing on the airplanes ended because in Tampa, a federal judge said that the CDC did not have authority to do that, did not have authority to mandate masks. I believe that's that's what the case was about. Either way, the mask went away because of a judge in Tampa. And then the same thing happened with the vaccine mandates. And then, you know, different different states and different lawsuits and everything. And so that's really the only recourse we have. And now here on on, on the First Amendment on speech, freedoms of speech, the 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 uh, the courts. But look who's look who's against us, us meaning the people. Newsom, the governor, attorney general, uh, 
California Medical Board, Osteopathic Board. These all these people were against allowing people to speak freely. That is the um, that's what's that's what's going on, and that's what's really a problem in um, you know across the board. That's what's a problem is this coalition of people seeking to limit the freedoms of the of Americans. And it's only because there are certain people that stand up. Some of them are like Ron DeSantis, Governor DeSantis. Some of them are, are, are these judges, these brave judges that stand up and, and put an end to this. Uh, let's see. This is new headquarters for the FBI. This is from American Greatness. The federal government is proceeding with plans to build a new FBI headquarters complex twice the size of the Pentagon building. Riveted into the colossal new project are woke regulations to ensure the FBI center will comply with diversity, equity, LGBTQ+, and climate change political goals. The plan unveiled last September has received little attention. For years, the FBI has sought to vacate its present headquarters, a brutalist concrete bunker on stilts and occupying two city blocks between the White House and the Capitol. Plans for the new FBI headquarters specify that it will be built on three, one of three sites. Uh, those sites are large parcels of 58, 61, and 80 acres. Uh, so it says here for for um, comparison, the Kremlin in Washington, and I'm sorry, in Washington, the Kremlin in Moscow, a walled fortress containing administrative offices of the Russian central government, the official presidential residence, massive auditoriums, an arsenal, a museum, four palaces, three cathedrals cathedrals and several churches is just over 66 acres isn't that what we need a bigger fbi oh sorry hoover's boys a bigger home for hoover's boys is 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 in the works in the house gop can stop it if they want to we'll see if they have the balls we'll see new york city's having a problem with their migrants not wanting to leave this is from Breitbart. New York City Mayor Eric Adams is pleading with border crossers who are refusing to leave the Watson Hotel in Manhattan, where they were initially placed for free to relocate to the city's mega shelter at Brooklyn Cruise Terminal. And it says here in a video message alongside an economic migrant from Venezuela. OK, so this is people who are supposed to be seeking asylum. Uh, so asylums were political asylum, like you're going to be persecuted, like if you were. Like, let's say I wanted to leave the United States and go to uh, Belize because I was persecuted for not believing that um, COVID-19 vaccines should be given to children. Then I could say, well, I have I need political asylum because they're going to take my license and I want to come practice there in Belize. Anyway, these people aren't coming for political asylum. This says an economic migrant from Venezuela. Alongside an economic migrant from Venezuela, Adams is pleading with border crossers to leave the Watson Hotel and relocate to the mega shelter, seeking to entice them with healthy, healthy food options and warm rooms. I just had to come here when I started hearing all the rumors about it was too cold. My brother got on shorts. It's warm inside. About the food not being there, Adams said, you know, healthy food is present. Even the snacks are healthy. They, need just, they just need to stop the anxiety. It says, Wilson, an economic migrant from Venezuela, who seemingly had no valid claim to asylum, said the goal of migrants arriving is to, quote, work and get ahead for ourselves. 
Seeking a job, though, is not a legitimate claim for asylum in the United States. Nope. All these people coming across the border are only coming across the border for one reason, and that reason is they will con contribute to future Democrat political power. That's the only reason. That's the only reason they're allowed here. As Rush said before, if the Democrats, for any reason, thought these migrants coming across the border illegally were going to vote Republican, they would pass a law the next day to shoot them on sight. And that's the truth. This is crazy story here. From uh, Fox News. It says, I, a woman mistakenly pronounced dead, quote, gasped for air in the funeral home. Founder and owner of Indiana Skunk Rescue, Julie McLaughlin and rescuer. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. It says, an Iowa facility is facing thousands of dollars in fines after a woman was mistakenly pronounced dead and taken to a funeral home only to wake up when she, quote, gasped for air, authorities said. The 66-year-old woman was at Glen Oaks Alzheimer's Special Care Center since December 2021 before she moved to the hospice care facility. The facility faces fines that could uh, be up to $10,000. I saw another article. Oh, so here it is. It says, um, over time, staff's, uh, staff members noticed her health diminished. On January 3rd, she was pronounced dead when staffers noticed, quote, her mouth was open, her eyes were fixed, and there were no breath sounds, the report said. A funeral home was called, and the woman's family was alerted. At 7.38 p.m., a funeral home director arrived, and a licensed nurse placed the woman's body inside a body bag and zipped it shut. They said there was no signs of life. Okay, so at 8.26 p.m., so this is almost an hour later, the funeral home staff member unzipped the bag and saw the woman's chest moving as she, quote, gasped for air. The funeral home called 911 in the hospice facility. When the uh, responders arrived, they were able to record a pulse and breathing. She was returned to the care facility and died on January 5th with her family by her side. That's crazy. It actually happened once when I was in residency. There was a patient, unfortunately, who uh, passed away or was thought to have passed away. And the nurse went in and they said, well, she passed away. Call the family. So they called the family. And they told the family, uh, your loved one has passed away. And they were you know, distraught. And they said, well, should we come now? And it was like 3 o'clock in the morning. And the nurse told her, you know, why don't you just, you know, Wait till, you know, you get up in the morning, seven to everybody, seven or eight when everybody's, you know, no, no need to rush in now. There's there's no calls for concern. You know, she's peaceful now. She's at rest and just, you know, come here at seven or eight. And then um, then you can you can say goodbyes to your your loved one. Well, the family said, OK, that makes sense. So then they, they hung up and then there was panic. Uh, the lady, it turned out, was not passed away she was still breathing and so then this set into a uh, kind of a, a conundrum what to do do you call the family back and say just kidding your loved one is not passed away or do you what do you do and in this case what they did was nothing except wait because she was very close to death and she actually did eventually pass away before the family showed up but that would have been something Glad it wasn't me. Uh, All right. Well, that's enough for today. Uh, go to the website, drtommy.com slash podcast. 
subscribe, share it with a friend. We appreciate it. Uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you next time. If you are in the area and you want to come say hi to us, we're uh, accepting new patients uh, for the time being. And come join us. We'd love to talk to you. Until next time, bye-bye.